Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I the Dutch Revolt To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War The July Crisis Anniversary Project The Swedish Deluge Britain Goes to War The 1916 To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672 This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Otto von Bismarck was arguably the most important statesman of the 19th century. Certainly, no other candidates of his calibre come to mind in the Prussian case. What he did during his career and the practical and psychological mark he left upon European relations are topics that I've tried to wrap my head around numerous times in the podcast, but I felt that as this remastered special contains numerous trips down memory lane, I would be really missing an opportunity if I didn't add in some new content as well. It is, after all, a party. So, with this in mind, here is the first of what I like to call WDF Thinks. Topical episodes exclusive to this remastered special, and tackling issues and questions which I encountered over the last five years, and felt were in need of fleshing out. They're short enough in their examination that they can be tackled and completed within an hour or so, although some of them are multi-parters, but they're also too complex or tangent-filled to somehow insert into the normal episodic programming. In a sense, several of these Think episodes were partially inspired by the direction which this podcast is now going on, more specifically through its expansion with Patreon and the opportunities I will have, thanks to your guys' support, to cover topics in a mini-series which I otherwise wouldn't have been able to justify. You can see it as a kind of celebration, in a way, because... Being five years old entitles us to splash out a bit, and I really loved the idea of simply overloading you guys with so much content that you don't even know what to do with yourselves. 
I also wanted to introduce you guys to a new side of Zach Twomley, one which you may not be familiar with because of my programming and tendency to rigidly follow my own production schedule. Through episodes like these, I feel I can better show my diversity and capabilities as a podcaster, and with this in mind, I wanted to tackle certain topics throughout the course of this remastered journey we're on, which will introduce you guys to what I have planned for us. You see, every time we reach a goal of major significance from here on in, with $500, $1,000, or $2,500, I know they sound incredible, but bear with me, we release a boatload of new content to celebrate. And because it's no secret that to celebrate each of these goals, I plan to launch a Polish history miniseries, a Bismarck biography, and a History of Prussia podcast, respectively, I thought it would make sense to do an episode which would touch on each of these topics. So, over the course of this five-week journey, you'll be able to feast your ears upon a Bismarck episode, which you're listening to right now to draw attention to the $1,000 goal, a Polish history topic dive to draw attention to the $500 goal, and a Prussian history topic dive to draw attention to the monumentally ambitious $2,500 goal. If this all sounds good, then I'd like to get on with it. I don't want this to be a, well, as soon as you give me money, all this could be yours kind of thing, but I genuinely want you guys to see what I'm capable of and what's in store for us, because we will all benefit the more this podcast expands. I've never done anything like this in history podcasting. I mean, in terms of, like, the five-year birthday with two episodes coming out every day and as far as I'm aware nobody else has either and believe me I can see why now having done it but at the same time I've never felt more enthusiastic or excited about when diplomacy fails as future prospects I hope you'll give each of these topic dives a listen and see what you think then I hope you won't see them as a promotional exercise either since each contains original content that I've never really tackled before And if you're a fan of this podcast, you're bound to find that new content as profoundly enjoyable and interesting to listen to as my other works, because I have works now, apparently. So, I hope you guys enjoy it, and remember where you can go to make all of this come true. WDFpodcast.com or Patreon.com forward slash When Diplomacy Fails. Alrighty, let's begin. I will now take you to 1870. Bismarck's finest hour was found in his ability to get what he wanted out of the international system. What this conservative Prussian Junker wanted from this system was a formula which would enable him, as Prussia's Chancellor and Foreign Minister, to advance the interests of Prussia. He had already done this capably in the 1860s, through wars with Denmark and Austria, which greatly empowered Berlin and granted it a privileged place in European affairs. Now, as it had become increasingly obvious where these conflicts had led, and where their logical conclusion seemed to be, Bismarck would have known that the only power on the continent which would stand in the way of this conclusion, this goal of unifying all German states under Prussia, was the Second French Empire under Napoleon III. As he had done before, the Iron Chancellor set himself the task of engineering the international system 
or more specifically the Franco-Prussian relationship, to bring about a showdown which would compel France to make an aggressive war on Prussia and tie the remaining German states to Berlin out of fear for their own safety. Precisely how Bismarck managed to do this and the numerous theories which explain why his French adversary reacted as he did are the subjects of this episode. This two-parter of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks was made possible in large part thanks to Todd Hall's article called On Provocation, Outrage, International Relations and the Franco-Prussian War, which I will put up in the Patreon page because it's free to view as an article itself on academia.edu, which by the way you guys should all check out because it's a really handy website for academic resources but doesn't actually cost anything so does that. With that out of the way then we can begin. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Thinks. It was the Roman poet Horace who wrote that anger is a brief lunacy, implying that while one is sufficiently angered, their judgment is impaired. We know this to be mostly true in the case of human beings, but what happens when these human beings are at the helm of powerful states? If one's anger can force one to do rash or uncharacteristic things in the heat of the moment, imagine the consequences of such anger were invested into state resources, and the anger of a prince or a leader could be put to practical use. In the heat of the moment, when commands which cannot be retracted are given, who can measure the significance of anger on a leading national figure when the irrational becomes rational so long as the colour red is seen? To be pushed to such a level of anger would take a great deal of prodding and provocation, and surely it is only a thin-skinned leader who internalises such insults, after all. When surrounded by one's peers who may themselves possess camera dispositions, and when a number of colleagues are on hand to bounce your frustrations off of, Surely the more sensible option would prevail, and the angered leader, soothed by his political allies, would refrain from taking his emotions to their more dangerous conclusion. This, indeed, is an ideal scenario, and history is full of such examples of national figures standing down from a rash course of action when their temper is eased or challenged by their more level-headed peers. But what about the alternative course? What happens when not only your colleagues, but also your subjects, share your anger? What happens when a litany of insults and challenges built up over time piles on pressure to act against the provocations and end the insults once and for all? What happens when rhetoric, when pride or when passions are added to the mix? What about desperation? What happens when the internalised anger has been internalised for so long by leader, statesman and citizen that no amount of debate or compromise could heal the feelings? And what happens when the pressure is felt as the world is said to be watching, as one's allies are said to be uneasy, or when nothing other than the most severe response will suffice. When you are expected to respond in a certain manner by those around you, when they balk at suggestions to tone it down, and when all seem itchy to receive the final logical order, these are the circumstances which compel nations to attack other nations. These factors are driving forces behind the causes for a failing diplomacy. When tensions, emotions and passions reach a certain point, little thought is rarely given for the actual plans or desires of the other side, and when the straightforward formula of insult to anger to reaction remains popular, less thought still is given to the possibility that the author of said insult, the sponsor of such provocations, may be waiting as eagerly for you to follow this formula as your citizens and peers seem to be. When angered to such an extent, in other words, the angered party can rarely afford to pause for thought and question whether there might be a possibility that they are not merely victims of insult, but also, potentially at least, manipulation. 
Understanding this fact can grant the insulting party immense advantages. Understanding what makes nations tick, what their governmental structure is, how the citizens feel and how the state is prepared, all of this knowledge is a source of immense power. Making the international system work to your advantage involves investing time and money into gleaning this information before any plans are made. Once sufficiently armed, it becomes a question of how to use this information to your advantage. Thus, we come to the situation in Prussia in the early summer of 1870. Two of the most important methods Bismarck had for instilling a sense of anger in Napoleon III and his ministers during the summer of 1870 was the promotion of Hohenzollern claims to the Spanish throne, and thereafter the editing of a documented conversation between King Wilhelm of Prussia and the French ambassador to Prussia, which history knows now as the Ems Dispatch. We have of course encountered both of these issues in our coverage of the Franco-Prussian War in its remastered form, so neither should be all that unfamiliar to you guys. But what I wanted to get into here was a fact that's often overlooked, the issue of why. I mean, why did Napoleon III feel so compelled to act rashly, thus falling into the arguably obvious trap which Bismarck had set? Why did France declare war on Prussia with great assumptions both about its own military capabilities and the potential allies it would have, yet it did nothing in the weeks or months before the war to cultivate any of these key aspects? And why was war fever at such a level in France when the state had already expended so much of its resources in previous wars, neither of which had been especially popular or successful? I mean, think of Mexico, for example, and even the Crimea to a lesser extent, and all those uninspiring wars against Austria in the name of Italian unification. Was Bismarck really the expert manipulator that he's often cast as? And is it possible that he didn't actually want a war with France? Look at it this way, how could he have known for sure that such a war would either be successful or would result in the unification of Germany under Berlin. All of these are questions which say a lot about how states viewed themselves, their rivals and the international system itself, and they are issues which we will attempt to unravel now. We should be familiar with the concept of national honour. I have droned on about it in my dissertation miniseries, and also the book which I released entitled A Matter of Honour, which examined Britain's entry into the First World War, based on the belief that if she did not intervene and make war on the... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Central powers, she would suffer a loss in prestige and stand accused of lacking moral fiber and thereafter see her influence and safety dip in the international system. This formula and the fears which constituted it were not valid merely for the case of the First World War or for Britain alone. National honour bubbled to the surface of European identity following the Napoleonic Wars, and in the absence of duelling between gentlemen, personal concerns of honour and satisfaction for past slights came to be transferred from the person to the nation. National honour had always existed, of course, in some form. I mean, history is full of such examples that we've even covered in our 17th century episodes. And within each state throughout history, it was moulded to suit specific state interests. For example, just off the top of our heads, Louis XIV believed national honour was upheld in his ability to defend his kingdom from foreign invasion. Legions of British monarchs believed that national honour was found in their supremacy over the seas, and they demanded recognition for this supremacy as a means of satisfying what they believed was their claim on that sphere. Russian national honour came to be intertwined with racial and ideological ideas, such as pan-Slavism, or the capture of Constantinople as a national destiny. Austria's sense of honour was predicated on its ability to maintain its power base in the southeast of Europe, in the Balkans, and thus defend against the rival nationalist claims of its smaller rivals there. We will come back to national honour in a later episode of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks, so I want to park it for now where it is. At the same time, though, its importance for both France and Prussia during the build-up to war in 1870 shouldn't be overlooked. National honour revolved around its defence. In other words, it was rarely talked of unless it seemed to be in jeopardy. Thus, we see Napoleon III and his ministers feel immense pressure to defend French honour against the slights and insults of the Prussians. Anger at these Prussian insults was the underlying factor, but if we ask why anger was felt at all, we emerge from the question with a more complex series of facts. Napoleon III was angry at Berlin, he was angry at Bismarck, and he was angry at the Germans, because he felt threatened. He felt his regime was threatened, he felt French supremacy in Europe was threatened, and he felt that the idea of his imperial position, as the inheritor of the same legacy as his uncle, was fundamentally threatened. Prussia would never have dared to act as she acted now, when Napoleon Bonaparte was around. The one time it did during the War of the Fourth Coalition, Berlin was squashed in a matter of weeks, and French triumph was unquestionable. Napoleon III was more than mindful about such historical facts. The uncomfortable reality for he and his regime, though, was that it plainly did not amount to the same level of prestige and power as that of his uncles. It was because France was led by this less impressive regime that Bismarck felt himself in a position to threaten it. Napoleon III would have known this, though he scarcely would have publicly admitted it. I mean, how could he? We know that it angered him because he recognised that, in a sense, his bluff was repeatedly called. His regime would have to respond to the challenges which Bismarck put forward, because if it did not, Napoleon's regime would just sink further in comparison to his uncle's, faced as it was with a series of crises by 1870, and his regime, if it continued to act the way it did, could very possibly disappear altogether. Understanding both the grand expectations which Napoleon III had set for himself the expectations which his people had for him, and the practical realities of the day, 
Bismarck was armed with every bit of information he would need to manipulate the situation. It shows diplomacy to be remarkably psychological in its roots, not to mention utterly dependent upon the opinions and dispositions of particular individuals in place at a certain time. This might seem like we're stating the obvious, but look at the persona of Napoleon III again. This emperor, as much as his ministers, expected a return to glory for France. They anticipated that Paris would become the centre of Europe once more, and that its power would establish a new empire that was as unassailable as Napoleon Bonaparte's had been. Much of Napoleon III's initial popularity rested on these assumptions, and it was only once they were repeatedly proven false in the late 1850s and 60s that the French people began to agitate and question his regime. Napoleon III, simply put, hadn't lived up to the expectations of his people or of the ambitions he had set personally for his regime. By 1870, the issue of shoring up this popularity, of improving the image of his rule and instilling a greater sense of pride in his regime meant that Napoleon III was more inclined to respond to insult. It meant that he was more likely to be easily angered, and it meant that his skin was thinner. It also meant that he was weak. We also know that Napoleon III accepted all of these facts because, if he didn't, he would have acted far differently. Leaders in a strong position don't feel the need to respond to provocations. Too much danger exists in reacting to circumstances which you yourself have not set in motion. So if one's rival is doing the insulting, the expectation is that they are prepared for your response, that they eagerly await your response, and that they desire it to be predictably rash and risky. You show your weakness by reacting in the heat of the moment, since the stronger ruler with a more stable regime or a better handle on the situation wouldn't feel pressured to act at all, knowing full well that by parrying the insult, by ignoring the slight, however provocative it may be, their regime would remain secure regardless. The diplomatic initiative is just as important as the military initiative, and when one allows themselves to be manipulated, they allow their weaknesses to be exploited. The best way to hide one's weaknesses is either to act unpredictably, or to refrain from acting at all. To prevent your rival's slight is so minuscule, so inconsequential, that your citizens and peers do not feel it is worth their time to pursue it. Of course, to be able to stand in such a position, one must be in possession of two critical resources. First, the genuine belief that your state is supreme, and second, the genuine belief that the rival is the weaker power. Seen in this way, one could argue that only the weak power reacts, only the threatened regime responds to slights, and only the stronger rival is capable of exploiting the situation. It's an argument that makes a lot of sense, and it's one which, I feel, best explains the actions of Napoleon III and his ministers in the summer of 1870. If we understand, or at least appreciate, the position Napoleon III was in, how do we explain the actions of Bismarck, his rival? In many ways, both men were the opposite of the other. Bismarck's regime was fresh off a series of successful wars, that greatly altered the dynamic of European relations. Bismarck's regime was domestically secure, thanks to the tide of nationalism he was able to ride, and the cooperation of the Prussian king that he enjoyed. Bismarck's regime was also comparatively young, beginning in 1862, a full decade after Napoleon III's. Critically, though, we can observe from further comparisons that Bismarck did not feel threatened in his dealings with the French, because he knew Prussia was in the ascendant, and he didn't have to feign strength on a diplomatic or military level. Berlin was expanding, it had expanded its power base, and it no longer relied exclusively upon the Prussian citizens. 
Germans in the states around it and within its North German Confederation now accompanied Prussian and therefore Bismarck's ambitions. Yet, critically again, despite all of these inherent advantages and the Chancellor's own understanding of his own strengths, he had been able to persuade these same Germans, as well as many others, that they were under threat from France rather than the other way round. Not only did Bismarck thus manipulate his rivals then, but he also manipulated his allies. To understand why Bismarck felt the need to engineer these feelings of endangerment and threat among the German states, particularly in the South, leads us to appreciate the extent to which Bismarck appreciated how people worked. For example, he would lead Prussia into war against France with a remarkably similar manifesto to that of Napoleon III. Berlin and its German allies, Bismarck claimed, was defending itself against the French aggression. It was responding in force to neutralise the threat posed by French designs upon the Prussian and German principles. It was acting because Prussian, and indeed German, national honour demanded it. One could examine these claims and argue that they fit in well with the circumstances of the era, that they gelled logically with what we know of how nations interacted and reacted in the 19th century. In many ways, such an examination fulfills Bismarck's plan, because he knew it made sense. He knew it was a contemporary argument, and he also knew that Prussian and German citizens would identify with it. Not only did he know this fact, he was also relying on it. The fact that diplomacy was and is such a personal exercise enabled Bismarck to draw attention to the interactions between Prussian officials and their French counterparts, and couch these interactions in a language that would make an impression on the public. This process sounds complicated, but it is as simple as letting the people know what is being negotiated, and what one's rival's desires and the capabilities of said rival is to achieve it. By being open about such facts, the people feel more intimate with international relations, and they in turn feel diplomacy not to be a technical chess game, but one involving high emotions, because it is their state, it is my state, which suffers the insult. So the popular element is thus profoundly important. And again, I know this sounds obvious, but its effects have to be emphasised, because if Bismarck didn't find a way to emphasise to the people across Germany how threatening France was to her, how strong Paris was, and how many advantages Napoleon III's regime held, then the subsequent unity would not and could not have taken place. Involving the public in diplomacy was possible through the dissemination of key events through the media, a relatively straightforward process in the 19th and 20th centuries, but undoubtedly far more complex now with the advent of social media and the resulting explosion of available sources of information. Without this element, the popular enthusiasm would be absent, and so much of the impetus of the soldiers would be absent to press forward as well. So when the population feels as though it has been let in on the inner workings of the state, and the citizen understands what is actually at stake, or at least they have an idea of what is at stake, that individual is more likely to take part in what follows, and is more likely, curiously, to be emotionally exploitable at the same time. A great example can again be found in the First World War, when the media from all the participating powers made grand claims to the justice of their cause and the low morals and danger to civilization posed by the enemy. Believing these claims as many citizens did, it was thereafter easier to install healthy sprinklings of propaganda amongst otherwise accurate bulletins. Making the people feel what you want them to feel doesn't necessarily have to come with propaganda, though. Napoleon III, after all, he didn't lie when he rationalised the French justification for war. 
well, to the French people. He merely told them the facts, facts which had developed ostensibly due to the position of both France and Prussia, and the collision of interests between them, but actually due to the exploitation of Napoleon the Man and his ministers, as well as the French regime itself. So the summary we are left with on a domestic level is that Bismarck effectively lied to the Prussian-German populations so that they would feel threatened, while Napoleon III, himself feeling threatened on numerous levels, used the genuine concerns which he and his peers felt at the insults and threats launched by Prussia to develop feelings of bitter hostility towards the Germans within the French people. Bismarck's manipulation and Napoleon III's reaction were eventualities made possible thanks to the circumstances in late 1860s Europe. The throne of Spain is our first source of tension, one which Bismarck well understood the value of, and which Napoleon III immediately appreciated the danger of. Yet it is worth considering the possibility that Napoleon was so blinded by the threat posed by what a Hohenzollern on the throne of Spain suggested, that he didn't stop to think about the trap that he was going to fall victim to. Much like when events did reach a boiling point by late summer, and Napoleon and his ministers and his subjects seemed blinded by anger, so too did the threat obscure the more sinister implications of the Spanish crisis. It is from the point of that crisis that we will resume our coverage in the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 